to start a school here in Rochester, and she will share more about her school. Uh, and uh, so anyway, Mavis, why don't you come on up here and just bless us with the word today. Give her a great big God bless as she comes up. Well, good morning, church. How's everyone? Good. Well, so am I. It's been a great weekend. Yes. I'll just have, I guess for me it was. Uh, Enjoy being with you. Enjoy your pastors. They're such a blessing. And so great to see the kids here today. You're awesome. Yeah, that's good. All right. Who's ready for the word? Amen. God, we thank you this morning. We've already prayed. We've already worshipped you, God. We're so blessed by your presence. God, you're awesome. You're amazing. You're worthy of our time, our attention, our devotion. God, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. God, you're so good. God, open our hearts and our minds this morning to hear what the Spirit is saying. Thank you, Lord. God, we set aside every distraction and every competing voice, God, for our hearts and for our devotion and for our time right now. Thank you, Lord. God, speak to us today in a way that's understandable and clear. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, uh, I've been uh, working on a couple messages for this weekend of uh, a series called Truth for such a time as this. Uh, And you can pre-order these out there. If you pre-order them, we'll pay the postage and send them to you on CD. Um, But really that truth is such a critical thing. And we live in a generation that says everyone can decide what that is. Everyone can decide what truth is for them. And uh, you know that disagrees with the Bible. Amen. All right, so let's look at, uh, let's begin today at John 18, and I'm just going to skip to verse 37. This is, we get a window into a conversation between Pilate and Jesus. This is right before Jesus goes to the cross, and uh, Pilate's kind of trying to decide what to do with him. He's not sure about it. Uh, So let's just go to verse uh, 36. Jesus looked at Pilate and said, The royal power of my kingdom realm doesn't come from this world. If it did, then my followers would be fighting to the end to defend me from the Jewish leaders. My kingdom realm authority is not from this realm. Then Pilate responded, oh, so then you are a king. You're right, Jesus said, I was born a king. And I have come into this world to prove what truth really is. And everyone who loves truth, look at, look at this condition. A lot of things in the Bible are conditional. We spend our time thinking everything in the Bible belongs to us. A lot of things in the Bible are conditional. Sorry to burst your bubble on square one. And everyone who loves the truth will receive my words. Pilate looked at Jesus and said, what is truth? As silence filled the room, Pilate went back out to where the Jewish leaders were waiting and said to them, he's not guilty. I couldn't even find one fault with him. What is truth? It amazes me that Pilate is in the very, very presence of truth 
and he still questions what is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Pilate was in the presence of truth, and he couldn't grasp it. Come on. I believe we are in the midst of a generation and a crisis, especially in America, as far as truth concerns. And I I believe we have a whole generation that's asking, what is truth? What is really true? What is truth? Let me give you some statistics here right now. Uh, These are new from last night, too. So we have have just these two. My heart in bringing these is to give us a grasp of where we at. Sometimes as Christians, we're in our little bubble and we all believe truth. And we don't realize really what's happening in the world. So right now, and I've got these for you on a slide, three in five Americans today believe there is no absolute truth. More than half of people. Four in five millennials believe there's no absolute truth. And one in two Christians believe there is no absolute moral truth. Y'all ought to thank God I'm not cordless. I want to run down the aisle right now. (laughs) One in two Christians. One in two Christians. One in two. Half of Christians believe There's no absolute truth. Pilate said, what is truth? How did he respond to that? What did he respond? What did he do? When you you have truth in your presence, what did he do with that? Oh my goodness. What did he do? He bowed to the will of the people. The people said, crucify him. Let's get rid of truth. Sounds like today. Let's get rid of truth. And what did he do? He bowed to the will of the people. And they did it. You know, it's amazing to me, even in that culture, in a culture of the Jews, they should have recognized the Messiah easily from some 400 messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament. But yet they missed him. They missed truth. You know, today, in our, in our, in our time, only 9% of Christians read their Bible every day. What will happen when truth is questioned, when truth is challenged, as it is every day in the marketplace? And many times across your internet, preachers and podcasts, are what, is what we're hearing truth or is it being twisted and bowed to the will of the people? The second thing Pilate did with truth is he had him scourged. He abused truth. He punished truth. Is our perspective of truth honoring to God? Or is it just whatever we want it to be? Let me give you some more uh, statistics. A startling 80% of Christians believe that any religion will get you to heaven. In other words, you can follow any God you want to, believe anything you want to. 80% of Christians, now we're not talking about Americans anymore, just Christians. 80% of them believe that any religion will get you to heaven. Worse yet, 56% of Christians, more than half, believe you can can believe anything you want and you'll get there anyway. We're robbing people of eternal destiny 
by allowing a generation to believe like this. The third thing he did is he washed his hands of truth. Matthew 27, 24 says, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. I'm telling you, this cannot be our response to truth. We cannot wash our hands of it. We cannot say, we'll leave this to another generation. Let the, the scholars figure it out. We cannot let the seminaries figure it out. Many of our higher seminaries right now are even teaching that the virgin, virgin birth isn't a reality. Christian faith is in crisis. I believe there's three camps. Camp number one consists of those who believe in a relationship with Jesus but that just means that you're going to keep a certain amount of rules. That's camp one. Camp two consists of those who believe a relationship with Jesus is just something we add to our lives. Well, I go to church. Sorry if I'm in your business, but I'm just here for today. Come on. I just go to church. That's what I do. It's just something that we add. Jesus isn't our Lord. He's something that we add. You know, and then I was in India uh, doing some mission work, and they told us before we went, you know, you have to be careful when you're doing evangelism in India because they have something like 30 billion gods or something. I mean, just an astronomical amount. Uh, everything's a god there. And so they said, in, you have to make sure that you specifically ask them to make Jesus Lord of their lives and for them to renounce all of their other gods. Otherwise, they'll just add Jesus to the pile. That's right. And I think a lot of Americans just add Jesus to the pile. That's right. Amen or oh me. And then we have a third camp whose relationship with Jesus is not made up of guilt or condemnation or shame or even religious duty, the fear of hell or even the hope of heaven. Rather, that relationship is motivated by the compelling sight of our glorious Savior and that irresistible power of his kingdom. We do it because we love him and we want to know him forever. What are some challenges that we're facing today? And I covered this in, in a different way last night, but we have, we've come to what is known as a postmodern worldview. And I don't have time to go into all of what that is, but the basis of it is that it, there is no absolute truth and man is the measure of all things. Now, each of us have a worldview, whether we want to admit it or not. It's the window through which we see and we determine our lives. This is why a lot of us in the older generation are so upset about America losing its Judeo-Christian values. Because this nation was shaped on those values and then see, we, it, they had that worldview, you understand. And so that determined our morality, that determined our laws, that determined the way we had relationships with people. But when you remove that, and man is the measure of all things, everyone can decide truth for themselves, you can see what a problem that causes. Everyone is aware that our culture here in America has changed dramatically over the last several years, and specifically over the last few. But the central battleground, if I can just take you on a little history run, of worldviews 
began in the 1800s when Darwinism began. Anybody remember that little phrase? And there was a big fight over it, okay? But then in, in the 20th century, mid-20th century, uh, we began to question the reliability of Scripture. And here we are. And now in this generation, we see that everyone is questioning truth. What is truth? Our key concern in regards to this next generation, you can just drop that for a minute, drop that slide, thank you. I'll get to that in just a minute. I just don't, I wanna keep your attention on what I'm saying. Our key concern in regards to the next generation is that they get Christianity. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I see a lot of parents in here. I see grandparents in here. And our key concern is that the next generation gets Christianity. Our, our primary focus shouldn't even be whether kids want to go to church or like to go to church. Uh, please don't throw anything. Or whether they think Jesus is their best friend or even if whether they know why they believe what they believe. Our focus should be teaching them what Christianity is because they simply don't get it. Again, thank God I'm not cordless. We, the, people don't know what they believe. That's right. They don't know why they believe what they believe. Right. I'm telling you, one of the greatest things as I began uh, having this vision for this school, and it started more than 10 years ago when I began writing curriculum, and it started because I myself got wrecked by the reality of what I didn't know and what was yet to know about Jesus. Right. Do you realize we're going to spend billions and billions and billions of eons learning about God and never getting to the end of him. Well, my God, we ought to be able to give our lives to that as well. I often hear students describe their experience of Christianity in these terms. I've been a Christian my whole life, but I don't really get it. And I prayed the prayer when I was four, but I don't think it stuck. I committed my life to Christ when I was 15, but I, I, don't, I don't really know what I did. See, it's way more than just getting someone to say a prayer. We have to, they have to understand, who is Jesus? Why is it important that we believe he's God? Was he a man or was he God? Or was he both? Can we, can we explain the virgin birth? Maybe we can't explain it. But maybe we can, we can believe that God chose that to bring a savior into the world. Is it important? Why, why does it matter if we believe in the virgin birth? Why does it matter if, if people are saved? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? See, can we answer these questions? Can we share this with a friend? Can we share this with our children? Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. What is Christianity really? What, does it matter? And I think it's, it's horrifying to me, these, these statistics, because we have people in churches that don't even believe in absolute truth. What are we doing here? What are we giving our lives to? I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to realize I only have one. You know the whole re reincarnation thing? It's not real, just in case you didn't know. It's not going to happen. You're not coming back as a cow or a bug or a fly, or another human. We don't get another chance at this. And we ought to use our lives for the glory of God, 
And we ought to use our mind and our intellect to know God in the deepest way that we can. Let's look at Matthew chapter 24. And I, I believe this is what happened. We have been in a season of enormous pressure. Has anybody been awake the last two or three years? Enormous pressure. People not knowing what to do. Confused. People are looking for answers. If we're ready, church, this is the greatest opportunity for harvest that has been in our lifetime. But we must be ready with answers and equipped, not just with, not just with cliche phrases, but the reality of what our faith means. Matthew 24, this is Jesus speaking about the end times. And I have these verses marked in my Bible because I just that's how I studied it out the first time. And, you know, it's so funny. Uh, let's start in verse 3, Matthew 24, 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? Okay, this is, this is the 20, uh, 20, 20th century church, 21st century church. We want to know the end times. We want our charts. Come on. We want to know. Tell us what's going to happen. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Look at Jesus's first answer. The first answer is always the primary concern. Verse four, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Hallelujah. You know, we always think about the end times and we want to know the, the, the wars and rumors of wars and signs in the sky, the blood moons. Boy, that was a rise up there. Uh, I'm not making fun of it. You understand what I'm saying? But we've been so focused on outward signs that we have no inward fortitude. That's right. That's right. We have no inward faith. Or, or, and I don't just mean faith like a mystical concept. We don't have a systematic understanding of Christianity. I'll just talk about myself. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive, I wish it said a few. This tells us the primary focus, the primary sign of the end times is gonna be rampant deception. And I believe personally, we are in the midst of this right now. Notice this in that verse, verse five, that many will come in my name and say I'm the Christ. Now I used to think that people were gonna come pretending to be Jesus and drawing people to themselves. That's how I used to view this verse. I don't view it that way anymore. I see it as people coming in his name, so they're coming into the church, in, in the guise of Christianity. They'll even say that Jesus is the Christ, and they'll still deceive many. This is happening today. Now, if you would have only said it this once, it would have been one thing. But Jesus says five times in this passage, in this sermon, he warns us of deception. Let's look at verse 11. Then many false prophets will arise and? How many? See, personally, I'm taking the word on right here. I'm just saying, Jesus, I want to make that many as little as we can. Honestly, that's my goal in life. Matthew 24, I'm not trying to undo the word, but many, it doesn't, he didn't say a million, he didn't say two million, so I'm like, Jesus, can we make it as small of a many as we can? Come on. Matthew 24, 23, 
Here he keeps talking about this. Do we think, can we know that it's important? Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there. Notice all of this is in reference to the person of Christ. And we deal with that uh, in another way in, in a class that I do. There, do not believe it. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders. To what? Deceive, Deceive if possible, even the elect. This ought to concern us. And if you think you're safe, my God, where's your heart for your kids and your grandkids and your uncles and your aunts, your neighbors? He says, see, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out there. Or look again, this importance that was so powerful of knowing the voice of God, knowing God. He says, don't believe it. Jesus was clear. That there's going to be a plague of oblivion and ignorance of the truth upon the generation of his return. We can go to those statistics now. This, these are current. Among senior pastors, only 41% have a, a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. Only less than half of senior pastors have a biblical worldview. Only 28% of associate pastors do. Only 13% of teaching pastors do. And I, I just think, what in the world? <laughs> and only, th and uh, let's see, executive pastors hold only 4%. So these are people that are working in the church as administrators. Only 4% of them have a biblical worldview. And here's the most horrifying one of all. Only 12% of children's pastors and youth pastors have a Christian worldview. Why is that so alarming? They're releasing revelation and discipling the next generation. Now, if these are 2022 facts, what's it going to look like in 2030 or 2040 should the Lord tarry? It's horrifying to me. And I refuse to give up more ground and watch my children and my grandchildren walk away from the faith because they don't understand it and they don't know what they believe. Let me give you this quote by A.W. Tozer, one of my favorites. The loss of the concept of majesty from the, from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, and utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A.W. Tozer. You see, if we fix our understanding of God and what we know about God, it's going to fix a lot of other things. This didn't start yesterday. This didn't start a decade ago. We're in a slide, probably a decade's worth or, or half a century slide in this nation. What's our antidote to this? I want to talk about more about the antidote, uh, spend time on that rather than, than just on the issue because we could go on and on about that. But let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Take notice of this. I know this is very familiar. You could probably quote it. I love Genesis. In the beginning, God. I just love that. 
Those first four words, in the beginning, God. Here's the deal. God just says, this is the way it is. He doesn't try to defend it. He doesn't, he doesn't give a definition for what God is or who God is. The, the Bible starts with an assumption that God exists and God created everything. I love this because this sets up God as supreme. Come on, you guys. He doesn't even have to say, hello, my name is God. I created everything. No, he just said, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was. In the beginning, God did everything. You weren't there. You can't say. Woo! Come on. Seriously. But we have such a low view of God. We all think, oh, well, the Big Bang Theory and scientific things say and blah, 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 blah. In the beginning, God. Come on. It was God's voice that brought order to the chaos. That was. And it's going to be God's voice again that brings order to the chaos that has become in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness. When did he do that? All the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Who has shown in our hearts that same God to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Come on. Notice it doesn't just say to give the light of the glory of God. Notice the verse. It says to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. See, the answer to this is knowledge. And I'm just going to share some things with you. Paul wrote a lot about the knowledge of God and learning about God. See, we have to love God with all our hearts, our souls, and our minds. And we really, honestly, in Christianity, I'm just going to say this. Um, sorry if, if you don't want to have me back. But <laughs> we have become so lazy Going through the motions in every way in America. You know, uh, America used to be one of the leading educating nations in the world. And this is this statistics five or six years old. We were number 19 between developing countries in our education of the world. I'm telling you, we are in a major slide in every facet of our culture that we talked about. The systems of this world have been just given over to Satan and we're in a slide in every way. Paul wrote about a lot of times about the knowledge of God and praying it over his church in his apostolic prayers. Ephesians 1.17. And just take note of these verses. I don't expect to, you to be able to turn here because we're going to go through about 20 verses in the next three minutes. Ephesians 1.17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you. This is what Paul prayed for the church. Do you think we should be praying it for ourselves? To give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. What? In the knowledge of him. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this I pray. That your love would abound still more and more. In what? In knowledge and all discernment. Boy, do we need discernment today. Amen. That you may approve the things that are excellent. See, there's a difference between things. There's a difference between things that are true and things that are not true. Things that are right and things that are not right. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Boy, there's a lofty 
aim, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1, 9 through 11, another prayer. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you. In other words, they didn't pray this just one time. And to ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, and that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Come on. Paul said it was everything to him in Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, poop or manure, actual literal translation, that I might gain Christ. Okay, specifically in the knowledge of God, and this is where we're going to move quickly, but let's look at 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. We can't just use phrases. We have to have understanding of what we're meaning by what we're saying. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now, we've read this a bazillion times. And we're thinking, yeah, that's the day. I'm telling you, yeah, that's the day. Not in the world, but in the church. Amen. And this is the horrifying thing about it sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and I thought that was true 20 years ago, OMG, (laughs) and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they'll be turned aside to fables, this is exactly what's happening, but you, he says, but you be different, Timothy, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry, this word sound This word sound in the Greek means to be uncorruptible, to be sound, to true in doctrine. And the word doctrine, don't let that, I mean, honestly, well, I just want to finish this and then I'll get to that. But doctrine just merely means instruction or teaching, to be instructed in the things of God. I lived during an era, and maybe you missed it. If you did, you can just say, Jesus, thank you. Uh, I lived in an era era when the church, especially especially the charismaniac church, I meant to say it that way, uh, the charismaniac church, we lived on goosebumps and feelings. Come on. Honestly, this is what set us up for this perfect storm. And I've been in churches that have disdained doctrine. Ah, we don't need that doctrine stuff. That's just stuffy and old. That's just, we don't need that. Come on. We don't need schooling. Anybody, let's just do a quick survey. Anybody hear things like that in, in churches? None of you? Yeah. You're, raise a hand. Come on. A few of you. Well, I was amazed when I saw how many times the Bible talked about doctrine. Are you ready to go with me? Okay. If you're not, hang on anyway. Ephesians 4.14, here we go. The sheer volume of this tells us that it was absolutely critical in the early church. They were fighting the same things as we are, paganism in the culture, come on, trying to differentiate between a religious system and a true belief in Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of There it is. The word is there. By the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. 1 Timothy 4.6, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourished up in the words of faith, that's where we stop the verse, and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. 1 Timothy 4.13, same chapter, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to give attention to it. It's important. 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed to yourselves. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples? Take heed that no one deceives you. We have to wake up. Yes. We can't just move through our lives like nothing's changed and nothing's happening. We have to take heed. We have to pay attention to ourselves and to the doctrine. Continue in them. It's not just for catechism like I learned in my denominational upbringing. That's when I learned some doctrine. But then we just let it go. Right? 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. We should labor in these things. That's just, that's for me. That's a word for me. Thank you. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, first of all, for doctrine, come on, thank you, Pastor. For reproof, for crash correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Do we want to be complete? Thoroughly furnished? Well, then we got to go back to square one and get solid in our doctrine. Titus, there's just a couple more. Titus 2. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in showing all things yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity. Reverence, incorruptibility. That should be our stance to doctrine. Verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud knowing nothing. Look at how strong Paul's words are for those that don't keep to the doctrine of the early church, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words Oh, wait, I, did I skip? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, let's go to 1 Timothy 6. I'm sorry, I totally blew past one. 1 Timothy 6. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. So the name of God and his... Whose is it? God's. His doctrine may not be blasphemed. If anyone teaches otherwise, here's where I skipped to, sorry, and does not consent to wholesome words, which we have a whole slew of this going on in the church right now. Even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ into the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. He's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, which deconstructionism, which we talked about last night, is completely about throwing away meaning for all words. And look, at the end of that verse, he says, from such, withdraw yourselves. Wow. I'm just going to let that sit there. Peter, we looked at Paul. Peter admonishes his con congregation to prepare themselves 
to respond to their culture. And see, this is where, where I think we've fallen down, especially in the last couple of day, uh, decades. We've tried to be so relevant to our culture, we've become almost indistinguishable from it. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 3, 15? I'm going to look at this in the Passion first, then New King James, then Amplified. In the Passion. But give reverent honor in your hearts to the Anointed One and treat him as the Holy Master of your lives. And if anyone asks about the hope living within you, always be ready to explain your faith. See, we just thought always being ready meant just, you know, being bold or being awake. But he says, no, be able to explain your faith. The New King James says, always be ready to give it an, a, a defense. But the Amplified says it this way. Always be ready to give a logical defense. In other words, we shouldn't just argue with people. We should be able to explain our faith in a way that we understand it and they understand it. But look at the rest of this. Who asks you to account for the hope that is in you, but do it courteously and respectfully. See, when we talk about apologetics, we're not just apologizing for our faith. I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. How most people are living, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. No, I'm a Christian and this is what that means. I'm able to defend that. I'm a Christian and you need to be one too because it's the only faith that will lead you to an everlasting life with God. Jesus is the only one that bridged the gap between a sinful humanity and a holy God. See, that's why, we can, why it matters what we believe. All right. Um, let's do it this way. Let's go to 2 uh, Thessalonians 2. I'm just going to quote this uh, verse out of Psalm. Psalms 11.3 says, If the foundations are, are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I think we're in that season now. And so we're in a real season of rebuilding truth in, in the church. Um, second, second Thessalonians two, nine through 12, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders. You know, you want to talk about long end times. Here you go. And with all unrighteous, what deception, deception among those who perish because this is why people are going to perish. And I believe this isn't just unbelievers. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, because they didn't love truth, for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure. And that, see this, can you see the heart posture in this? Yeah. Have pleasure in unrighteousness. The passion uses these verses, verses 10 and 11, 2 Thessalonians 2 says it this way, because they rejected the love of the truth that would lead them to being saved, because of this, God sends them a powerful delusion that leads them to believe what is false. The standard of truth. You can see with the, giving you the statistics I gave you at the beginning, four, one, one out of every two, half of Christians don't believe in absolute truth. Truth is the first piece of our armor, the belt of truth. And it's the piece that holds all the other pieces together. And so when you remove truth, 
it crashes down. So, so what do we do about this? Not loving truth opens us up to being deceived and to deception. So right now we have, we need to do a course correction. If we thought, I don't, I didn't think doctrine was important. I don't, I didn't know. I just thought if I just read my Bible, if I did, did my quota, I'd be okay. And I, w I lived there until God began to open my heart to some of these things. Ask yourselves, why do I believe this? What do I believe about Jesus? And why do I believe that? Could I explain that to someone? What do my kids know? I mean, what do they really know? Not what they say. Not, you know, it's not just giving a right answer. What's in their hearts? And lastly, a Christian should never love what is evil. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And we live in a generation now where we're calling good evil and evil good. We must raise up a standard of truth. We must. You know, Isaiah 59 says, when the enemy comes like a, a flood, in like a flood, what do we do? Raise up a standard. The Spirit of God will raise up a standard. Where does the Spirit of God exist? Come on. One person's awake. High five. Pew. He exists in us. So if there's going to be a standard of truth that's raised up, who's it going to come from? We can't wait for someone else to do this. Again, we can't wash our hands of the responsibility of carrying this to the next generation. So first of all, let's go, let's go to those slides. Here, here's the, the end of it all, the antidote. As believers, we have to hold to these truths. This is a standard. First of all, God's word is truth. Amen. Come on. That's our standard, you see? And a worldview always has a standard of truth. Okay, are you hearing me now? It always is based on something. Like a Muslim's worldview is based on the Quran. Okay? Uh, a worldview is always based on a standard. Our standard as Christians is based on the word of God. So when I'm reading the word, we should. If I see something in there, I'm like, oh, I don't think that way. Ho, oh, correction time. Time to change our mind to think like the word of God. Amen? Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. I want to pull up that graphic again. I'm not going to do it. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. We have churches posting on Facebook that the, word, the, the, the Bible is not the word of God. Come on. Come on. The word is eternal. And God gives the word equality with himself. John 1, in the beginning was the word. Sounds so much like Genesis. But he gives equality with the word. How much reverence and honor should we have for the word if God gives it that much reverence? Amen. Here's a verse I wanted to white out of my Bible because I, I couldn't believe how could this could be true. Psalm 138.2 says you've magnified your word above all your name. First time I read that, I looked in every translation I could find. This was P, P, or BC, before computers. So I had to literally look in every Bible I could find. I said, surely he doesn't mean he exalts his word above his name. His name is the highest thing in everything, but he takes his word and exalts it even above his name. So how should we diminish the word so much as Christians? That's right. 
Psalm 33, 4 says, the word of the Lord is right. See, if the word makes you mad when you're reading it, who's wrong? Just say I am, and you can mean me. Number two, the second thing we need to do, God's word is truth. We have to settle that. Number two, we must love the truth to keep us from deception. See, we have to move, we have to move, move from, I'm sorry if this is offensive, from our casual hookup relationship with the word to a married, I'm sticking with you till death relationship with the word. Not just digging it when we need it, which is good if you do, but we need an everyday relationship with the word of God. This is, this is not a head nod. I'm not, not, oh yeah, it says that in the Bible. Oh no, we need to go way beyond that. It says it somewhere in there. We need to go way beyond that. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, who desires all men to be saved, right? We know that. God desires all men to be saved, but we stop there. What's the rest of the verse? And to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, that's where we, we, we have to pick up this, this, this two-edged sword of evangelism and discipleship in the church again. Getting people saved, getting people out of dangerous situations on their way to hell. We need to pull them out of the fires of hell, but then instruct them in the ways of God. Amen? Romans 12, 2, out of the Passion. Look at this. Stop imitating. This is written to a church, y'all. So Paul's writing to a church saying, stop imitating the ideals and the opinions of the cultures around you. And I say this to the church in America. Stop imitating the ideals and the opinions of the culture around you and be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation. That's what we need, a total reformation of how you think. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in his eyes. We all want the beautiful life. But that comes through turning away from the culture and transforming our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Number three, truth in reality can and must be lived out in imitation of Christ. In other words, truth looks like something. Truth isn't just, I'm not just talking about a head knowledge here and gaining knowledge, although we'll do that. But that knowledge should change the way we live. It should change the way we see the people around us. It would change, it should change the passions that we have and what means something to us, what we're living for, what we want to leave to our kids, the legacy we want to leave behind. Truth should translate to that. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word needs to become flesh again and dwell among the population of the world through the church. The word becomes flesh. It becomes who we are and we live out of the word. Look what Jesus prayed in his last prayer in John 17. 14 through 19. I've given them your word. What a gift from Jesus. And the world has hated them. Remember cosmos, world system, not this planet. The world system has hated them because he is not of this world system. 
He says, I don't pray that you should take them out of this world system, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world system, just as I'm not of this world system. Sanctify them, set them apart, consecrate them. How? By your truth. And it says it right there, your word is truth. You want to know what is truth, Pilate? The word of God is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent us into the world system. We're sent into the world system. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified again by the truth. Let me close. It's okay if you say amen. I want to show you a verse and then uh, we'll pray and then I want to present one more thing to you. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. These things I write to you. Now, 1 Timothy is Paul's last book that he wrote while he was here on earth, probably written from prison. So when he writes this, you can see the urgency in his heart, like he's getting the most important things out. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, so in other words, if I don't get there, you have to know this. I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Look at this, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Amen. You know, our, my church at home has pillars, and I would hate to see what would happen if you take those pillars out. Y'all want to take the support beams out of this house while you're in it? See, and that's what's happening in the church today is the pillars are being removed. The pillar of truth yes. is being removed. And we have to restore those pillars and that foundation of truth. And that is knowing doctrine, knowing, growing in the knowledge of God and increasing in our love for truth. Amen? So just close your eyes with me. And I just, I want you to get in a place where... You can just really just say, God, and I mean, if you have to repent, church is a real good place for repenting. If you haven't loved truth or if you haven't thought it was important to even know the Bible or know what you believe, God, I just want to return to you with all my heart. The first step is always returning to God. God, I want to return to you. I want to love truth. God, I don't want to be deceived. I don't want my kids deceived. I don't want my grandchildren deceived. I don't want to live in a place of deception. See, the worst thing about deception is you don't know it. This is why I have so much passion for this. Because I believe we're living in that time of slumber. Why did Jesus say, watch and pray until I come? Because he knew we'd have to wake up. And so our hearts cry for the church to wake up. Wake up to our true calling. Wake up to love and devotion to God. Wake up to fresh starts. God, I pray for a fresh hunger for your word in this place. God, so much hunger for your word. God, that we would just be insatiable. When I was a young teenager, I'd got in trouble for having my light on late at night because I'd be reading the word of God. I want to be like that again. I'd find myself reading till one or two in the morning because I couldn't get enough of what God had to say. God, restore to us our first love. God, do it. Give us a love for your word. God, make us contagious. God, we want to infect this generation.
with a love for you and a love for truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Well, I just want to know, I love y'all. I might sound pretty crazy when I'm preaching, but I just really love you. I love the word of God. I love Jesus. And I want people to make it all the way to the end. Amen. So we, we just want to talk to you about an opportunity that uh, I have notes now. I hope I can do a good job about this. But I, became, I began studying theology about 10 years ago. And I already had a master's degree in theology. And I was so shocked at what I didn't know. And ashamed, kind of. I'd grown up in the church my whole life. And there were so many things I didn't know. This is why I'm so passionate about this, is I've lived it. And so I began studying theology and writing curriculum and began a school called Foundation Theological Institute. And I wish I could come up with another name for school because people, some people went to school and they hated it. But my heart in this is for you not to hate school. I want you to love learning. And I want you to grow in your devotion to Jesus. And I want you to have a solid foundation that you can live on. Amen? And so what we do is, God gave me this idea. I was praying, praying, praying. God, how do I get a, how can I get what I'm learning into the common person's world? Because not everyone can just pick up their families and go away to Bible school for an extended period of time. And so I came up with an idea and I call it a mobile ministry school. It's mobile, it's mobile, we come to you, uh, but we, you're actually in a class for three months. Okay, now I'm not with you three months. You can all exhale. <sighs> That's good. But what you do is you start, you read on your own and you study on your own for five weeks at your own pace, at your own leisure, however it fits in your schedule. Okay, you just do, you do you with studying. I encourage a lot of people to incorporate it into their devotional time because you, you, we ought to be in the word every day, right? We don't want to be... Uh, of the, what is that, 91% of Christians that are not in the Word every day. Oof, that sounds worse. Anyway, I might have you do this. <laughs> that So you're in that, you're in that for five weeks, and then I come, I'm going to come, we're believing that I'm going to come here. I'm going to come here, we're going to hold class for a week, three hours a day, five days in a row. Boom, we do it. Intense, but we get it done. And we cover this... We, you'll, get a, you'll get a book like this for your class. We're going to do spiritual formation, which I would encourage, even if you have teenagers in your house, they're going to be able to understand this. And this gives us a basic understanding of what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ? How do I do that? How do I get in the word? How do I journal? How do I pray? Fasting? Prayer? What is that? We're going to learn it. Come on. And so it's really flexible. I'm flexible. You can talk to Sue about that. Uh, we're actually going to be here on August 31st to do a, um, a registration, thank you, registration event. I'm going to have some testimonies available. Then uh, the cost of the class is generally $100. When we do a registration event, we'll give you a break on that. There's a break for couples. Couples can come for $150. We do a family discount. Your whole family can come. I don't care if you have seven kids. Your whole family can come for $200. Come on, that's pretty good. All right, I, uh, so we have information sheets at the table, but this is what we need. If you've been stirred at all by these statistics and by the state of the church, and you have a hunger to grow for God, we want you as a student. Amen. God wants you to grow. 
Amen. And we want you to be a part of this. We, will, we need at least 12 to 15 students to come to a location to cover our costs. And so neighbors, friends, you don't have to go to this church. We're going to try to bring in some other churches. But put that on. I heard that you just got a calendar for August. So the very last day, August 31st, we'll be here for that registration event. So keep that in mind. It's on the calendar. High five, man. We just decided that yesterday. But the actual class week when we'll be here is in October. We have some save the date cards back at the table. So you can get that. Pray about it. Say, God, do you want me to grow? I'm not going to give you the answer. Anyway, we love you guys. We so appreciate you. Thank you for opening your hearts to our ministry this weekend. We love you guys. We're so thankful. We're actually kind of a little bit sad that uh, it's over. It went so fast. So thank you, Pastor. Amen. Praise the Lord. Is she a teacher or what? My Lord. And if you need, if you'd like those PowerPoints, she already sent them to me. And the one slide, the one slide that you said you shouldn't show again, could you show that slide? Joe, can you find that real quick before we end? You just have to see this. She sent the slides to me before she came. Oh, the orange and white one? The orange and white one. Yeah, the come, orange on, and white one. Come on, just, right just, Woo! you have to see that because some of you didn't see it. I want you to see this. Go ahead. They're finding it. Are you doing okay back there? Just let's just give it up for the media team. There it is. Okay, so last night I shared this graphic. Pastor saw this and he almost didn't want me to come anymore because he thought this was my belief. But this this actually is a graphic off a church's website, uh, a young progressive church, non-denominational. We would all think it was hip and fun, but they posted this and they said the Bible isn't the Word of God. The Bible isn't self-interpreting, which it is. It interprets itself. It's not a science book. It's not an answer or rule book. In other words, you don't have to live your life by the word of God. This is what this church is saying. And it's not inerrant. In other words, it's not without error or, or uh, incapable of fulfillment. But this is what they called the Bible. The Bible is a product of community. In other words, we all get together and decide what the Bible means. It's a library of text. It's just a bunch of old, old texts. It's multivocal, many voices. No, actually, it's the voice of the Holy Spirit. And this is a kicker. It's a human response to God. No, actually, it's God's word to us. Do you see how tricky that is, though? It looks kind of fun and hip. And then they said it's living and dynamic. And you're all thinking of Hebrews 4.12. That's not what they mean. They mean it's changes with the times. Wow. Just like they're trying to change our Constitution to make it fit our day. You know, it's living. They say it's a living document. No, it's, it's, it's a, a static document. The Bible's a static truth. It's always true. But I, I found this, and it made me so mad. It just lit me up. So every church I go to, I'm showing this now. I'm like, this is, what, this is where we're at. A church is posting this. And you know, here's the thing. You can believe what you want. But with social media the way it is now, think of a young generation looking at this, not having any foundation, which, you know, they have 12% of them now, don't have a Christian worldview or being taught that it doesn't really matter what you believe. Man is the measure of all things. Here we go. They're looking at this and they, they see this coming from a church saying this about the Bible, that this is truth. Selah. Sorry, I'll just go into message two again. 
yeah. <laughs> Sila indeed. Well, you've been so patient, we'll let you go. Um, but anyway, praise God. Didn't, you know, the Lord said that this weekend was going to be so strategic in timing and purpose, and I really believe that. Um, this is time for, to do this. Yeah. It's time to do this. We must do this. Amen. Well, let me speak a blessing over you. I encourage you, before you leave, check out um, Mavis's book table. A lot of good. Yeah, say hello to them. Um, and if you're at all interested in the school, if you're at all, just because you, you tell her, I'm interested, doesn't mean that you're signing your life away. Amen. Exactly, because we're just trying to build, I believe we're supposed to have a school here in Rochester. I believe that. Everything that God's doing, is it's another stepping stone towards that. Amen. Raise your hands towards heaven with me. Receive the blessing of God. Father, I thank you for these precious saints. What a blessing they are. I thank you that they're the very best that you have right now. You saved the choice believers for this time. I thank you that they're hungry for you. I thank you that they're vessels of truth. And I give you glory and I give you honor that this week is going to be incredible for them. That you're going to show yourself so faithful and true. And you're going to honor them because they honor you first. In Jesus' name. Now extend your hands towards Mavis and beg your assistant. Father God, we thank you for these two. We thank you for the anointing and the calling that you've placed on their lives. We are so blessed. We bless their ministry. Wild ministry is growing. I just hear that it's growing. The Lord would say, daughter, I love you. Thank you for answering the call to stir up my body for such a time as this for my word. Know that doors are opening for you because there's not much time and things must be settled right. Father, I pray that you bless them you bless them financially. You bless them with resources. Father, we commit this school to you. We know that you'll raise up those Bereans. Wherever they are, they'll be we're 12, 15. No, we're going to have much more than that. We thank you and we praise you for this. Bless them and their families for their service of love. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Lord bless you. We'll see you on Wednesday night.